Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hi everyone, I hope you're staying safe and healthy and I'm just sending everybody a little extra love this week. April 22nd is Earth Day. And as we stay at home, I'm sure you've all noticed all of the news or maybe just looked up and seen bluer skies and cleaner air. And I think this serves as a reminder that our actions matter and we can make small changes and big changes in our lives that can truly help to save the planet. Today's guest is very special and I was so excited and honored to talk to him. It's former Secretary of State John Kerry, who has a new initiative called World War Zero, which is a movement to achieve net carbon zero emissions, create millions of new jobs in the process, and unite people along the way. We talk about his time in service, why working to end the climate crisis is so crucial, and much more. He also touches on the 2020 election, why paper ballots are so important, and how we can all help stop voter suppression. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and that you feel inspired to act as well. Thank you for being here. I am so honored to have you on the podcast today. I'm a longtime admirer of your work and your service, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. So Thank you very much. Before we get into the current state of affairs and, and what you're up to, I, I love to go backwards with guests, especially people as impressive as yourself who, you know, audiences see out working in the world. Where did you grow up? I, I know that you lived all over because your father was a foreign service officer. Yeah, he was. Well, my father went into the foreign service. He was... Um, a lawyer in Washington working in the Navy Department. Then he went into the State Department. And I suddenly found myself whisked out of school, didn't know where the hell I was going, <laughs> wound up uh, in Switzerland at a school being dropped off when my dad went off to uh, Berlin. And this is in the height of the Cold War, 1954, around that. It was a great adventure. I didn't love every minute of it uh, then as much as now. Mm. But um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about other countries. I learned about war. I learned about how complicated uh, life can be for people in certain places, particularly in the aftermath of a war. Mm. Uh, and, and so it was a great education. I'm very grateful for it. When you talk about that, the, the things that you learned, were you gleaning a lot of that information from the conversations you'd have with your father when he was home? Or was it really more what you were learning out in your experience in the parts of the world you It was really in. both. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really both. Our dinner conversations tended to be about something that was happening, mm -hmm. uh, you know, around us in the world, probably more serious than some places. On the other hand, I picked up a lot because I just went out and soaked it in. And, you know, I used to ride my bike all around the city. In fact, I once rode into the East Sector, you know, found it to be grisly and scary and raced out and my dad informed me I could have been an international incident if I you know it was really weird but I learned a lot I learned a lot it was fun 
Wow. So did you know from an early age, given the way that you grew up, that your path would be one of service? No, not completely. I think when I was in high school, that's when President Kennedy ran. Mm. And as a kid from Massachusetts, you know, that's all we heard about and knew. Uh, it was exciting. And I then went to college, right, I guess, two years. I began college two years into his presidency. It was exciting. And that's when I felt challenged. That's when I was sort of called to public service, in a sense. And I think while I was an undergraduate, I did have a sense of, of certain possibilities. I wasn't committed to being a politician at all. I, but I thought I might be in the Foreign Service like my dad, or I might be a writer, uh, for a journalist, sort of follow the events or interpret the events. Mm-hmm. But I knew I was attracted to what was happening in the world around me, and I wanted to have some impact on it somehow. I love that. I, I wound up studying journalism in university as well, and I think it was really, I think it really has informed everything about my life, whether it's, you know, political service, activism, even the way that I, you know, I make projects in the entertainment sphere. It, it really shifts a lot. That's incredible. Where, where, where'd you go to journalism school? Uh, I went to Annenberg at USC. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was really neat. I actually got to have my favorite professor from college on the podcast last year, and it was so much fun. Wow. That must have been great. Yeah. There's a, there's a twist of the journey. So what was the path then for you, you know, high school in Boston, you see, you see Kennedy get elected. And, and I do imagine there is a bit of that. If you see it, you realize you can be it. You think this is a hometown kid like me. What does that look like? So, so then what happens when you decide to go to college and, and, and you wind up in the Navy? What's, what's the sort of path there for you? Well, I, I, I didn't go to high school in Boston. I went, I went to a boarding school up in New Hampshire because my parents were in, in at that period, they'd moved from Berlin to Norway. Wow. So they were in another part of the world, but, but they thought I should be at school in the States. So I went, uh, I went to college uh, in 1962, matriculated as a freshman. And that was the beginning of the, years of activism. I mean, we were were all really impacted by the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and the anti-war movement began partly in about 1967, the year after I left college. I had already signed up to go into the military. And I did that because I felt an obligation to serve. I think our, 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 you know, most of us were, I was a son of of a greatest generation parents and service was something they taught all of us in our family. Mm. We grew up with that sense of responsibility. If you're, if you know, you're given a lot in life, you owe something back for it. So I, I knew I, I should serve. And I went into the Navy, served, came back from Vietnam, very opposed to the war. I was very opposed to it because of what I had seen Mm -hmm. and learned about the deception of our own government about what we were doing and why we were doing it and how we were doing it. And at that point, also, I became involved uh, when I first came back from Vietnam in in Earth Day, 1970. And we all organized around the country, inspired by Senator Gaylord Nelson, 
whose idea it was, and a young activist who was helping to put it together, who did it for him, named Dennis Hayes, who now, 50 years later, is still at the helm of the Earth Day Network and still fighting for the environment. And so uh, we all organized for that first day, April 22nd, 1970. 20 million Americans came out of their homes on that one day and made a statement about wanting better air quality, wanting cleaner water, not wanting to live next to toxic waste site, not wanting to be, you know, having their kids drink something that made them ill or killed them. Mm. And so it was a profound, very big movement for that time. And it carried into the election, actually. In that election, we targeted the 12 worst votes in the United States Congress. They were labeled the Dirty Dozen. And the environmental groups advertised and worked at it. And people organized. And guess what? Seven of the 12 were defeated. Mm. And when that happened, it unleashed a torrent of environmental uh, legislation. Mm. That's when the Clean Air Act was passed and the Safe Drinking Water and the Marine Mammal Protection and the Coastal Zone Management and the Endangered Species and the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States was actually created. Richard Nixon, Republican, signed it into law. So it was a heady time for accomplishment and getting things done. And unfortunately, we've gone backwards in the last years, Mm -hmm. many of those things being undone step by step by a combination of ignorance and ideology and, uh, you know, a kind of outlook that's very hard to explain by any reasonable standard. Truly, it's, it's shocking to me watching the news every day and looking obviously with what's happening presently with COVID and its ties to the environment, it's astonishing. But even prior to the outbreak of the pandemic, to watch the rollback of legislation, to watch, you know, President Trump signing into law permissions for companies to dump toxic wastes into our rivers. I'm honestly dumb. Isn't that amazing? You mean, you mean you don't want that to happen? How bizarre. It's just so shocking. Why? I know. So shocking. I know. But I mean, where is the constituency for that? Right. You know what it is? Not, not average citizens. People don't want more junk in the air. They don't want pollution. But the companies mm-hmm. that are producing it want less expensive day-to-day life. And, and so they, it's crazy that we're doing that. It seems to me as well that it's got to be a lot of those companies who stand to benefit financially from being big polluters who've, who've gotten behind this messaging about, you know, climate change being a hoax or whatever other nonsense we hear when, to your point, we're all equally affected, regardless of our ideologies or how we vote, we're all affected by the environment. We're all affected by the water. And that's always seemed so obvious to me, I think, because I had the good fortune to grow up in Southern California. And, you know, my, my Saturdays were spent in the woods or in the ocean, not, Hmm. not in, in, indoors. And so the environment for us here has always been such a, a point of both passion and, and to your point, something that I think so many citizens in my state feel like they have to steward. We feel like we have a real responsibility yeah. to it. I, I I hate to skip over your career, 
But in a way, we've wound up exactly here talking about present climate change. And and because you are an expert, I would love to discuss with you how it does tie into COVID. Because much like we've seen the the right calling climate change a hoax for for weeks, even months really, now that we understand that the president was briefed in November of 2019. And we know that through February of 2020, he was calling COVID a hoax, claiming it was created by the Democrats to, you know, upset his election, which is a wildly egotistical thing, in my opinion, to say about a global pandemic. And now we see that the U.S. is leading the global coronavirus death toll. And we see that in Areas in our country where people suffer environmental impacts, the the impacts of COVID are higher. So with all of your wisdom and expertise, how are you assessing this? In in your estimation, what do we need to do to slow the curve? What what measures do we need to enact or or perhaps bring back to slow this down or ensure it doesn't happen again? Well, let me say, first of all, that sadly, there are already people challenging the models by which it was predicted that 100,000 or 240,000 people might die. And now you hear some people on the political right saying, oh, my gosh, it's only 60. It's only 60, you know, 50, whatever. Why are we stopping the economy of our country for this, et cetera? You already hear those questions. And we're going to have a debate, I can tell by people who are going to challenge this and try to link it to climate change. You watch. They will come along and say, just as they underestimated COVID, they're underestimating this. And we don't know where we are with COVID. That's what's so ironic about this early uh, initiative to try to undermine. Mm. We're doing okay in this country, but nobody should stand up and applaud what's happened to the United States of America. We're number one in deaths in the world. Mm -hmm. Almost 31,000 people have now died, and nobody should be comparing that. I mean, we didn't have to go through that. Mm. If we hadn't spent 70 days sitting around while the federal government decided, you know, we're not going to take it that seriously. We'll be all right. We're fine. Blah, blah, blah. And the result is, we, we, we have had to take more extreme measures to shut down. And, and so other countries have done much better than the United States of America in controlling this. Mm. That's just a reality. Other countries clearly have had far less deaths, less percentage, and they shut down sooner and they took steps earlier. Mm. So the linkage to climate change is very, very real. Listen to the scientists. Take note of the facts. Mm. You know, don't create your own truth. Don't wish something away like this. And, and so that's one linkage to, between climate and COVID. Another one is that as climate change, as the crisis grows, and it is growing, as you see more areas become uninhabitable, mm. as water is reduced in its quantity to certain locations, as you lose the habitability, as you have disruptions in the food service chain and so forth, people are going to move. I mean, last year in Pakistan, there was a city where it was 125 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. And people were dying of that heat. That was the result. Now, as we go forward, there will be many, many more places Mm -hmm. where that becomes the norm. And people are either going to die or move. And as they Mm -hmm. see people dying, they're going to move. 
So you're going to have climate refugees. How are you mm -hmm. going to manage those refugees? Already we see massive changes in what will grow, where it will grow, when it will grow. The seasons mm -hmm. are changing. Every person in their, you know, con in their right senses can observe that on a daily basis. You see those changes. Right. Our storms are more intensive. We have greater amounts of rainfall. We're having more floods. What used to be a 500-year flood, once in 500 years, now happens once every X number of years, fewer years. Uh, you know, this last year was the hottest year in recorded history. It had the hottest January, this last January, hottest January in recorded history. We had the hottest day during that January in recorded history. We had a 65 and 70 degree day in Antarctica. I mean, it's just staggering what is already happening. Mm -hmm. And the scientists are now seeing very significant instability in the ice sheet of West Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing it in the Arctic, where you have massive melting on a daily basis of the Arctic ice sheet. Mm -hmm. This has serious consequences on fisheries. It has serious consequences on the salinity of this ocean, mm -hmm. of the chemistry mm -hmm. of the ocean. So I'm told by scientists that we are changing the chemistry of the ocean faster today than we have at any time in 50 million years. Now, how do they know 50 million years? Because geology, ice cores, a whole bunch of different scientific inputs allow you to measure what was happening. Yes. We even know what the carbon dioxide levels were at various periods of history. Yes. And that's part of what fascinates me is that out in the world, there's been such aggressive pushes in these disinformation campaigns that science can be doubted at all. My my argument anytime I go out and talk about this and I, I have the, you know, privilege of speaking to a lot of young people and at a lot of universities and schools, and I always say, listen, I don't really care how you feel about this. You've got to think about the math. Two plus two will always equal four. When we're talking about carbon dating, that's science. When we're talking about air quality, that's science. These things are not up for debate. And, Correct. And I think it's been hopefully a wake-up call, not to say by any measure that the planet at large scale is healing right now, but the fact that in one month of a shutdown, Los Angeles now has the cleanest air in the world is a sign that we are truly causing so much damage daily. You know, look at, look at what would be happening if we changed our commuting habits and our working habits and traveled a bit less. And, and I think sure. yeah. my, my, my hope is that the silver lining of this immense disaster is that we will see that our impact really is measurable. That is, that is my hope. And, and I think because in so many ways we don't often see, to your point, when we talk about the acidity of the ocean, when we talk about the health of the ocean, the bleaching and die-off of these coral reefs that truly keep us alive, the ocean, are, that, that's the planet's lungs right there. People don't 51, see 51% of our oxygen, mm -hmm. you know this, I'm sure, 51% mm -hmm. of our oxygen comes from the ocean. Mm. So we clog them up or change that chemistry. Mm -hmm. You could really be changing things in a very <laughs> dramatic and negative way. Mm. I just want to give a big round of thanks to all of our sponsors during this time. Obviously, things are up in the air and weird and scary and 
So many people are trying to figure out what this means for their work and for their careers. And I'm really grateful that our sponsors are sticking with us right now so we can continue to bring content to you. And I'm so grateful to all of you for listening because this is how we support them and the people who work at their companies. So enjoy. It's my personal belief that every woman deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day. And that also happens to be a belief of one of our amazing sponsors, Third Love. With the right kind of support, Third Love is helping women do exactly that. Their bras are designed to fit you, not the other way around. They have been designed with measurements from millions of women. They have over 80 bra sizes, and they know that the only one that matters to you is yours, which is why every bra is backed by their perfect fit promise, 60 days to wash it and wear it, and if you don't love it, returns are always free, and they will wash and donate the bra you've returned to a woman in need. The way that they manage to fit each of us so perfectly is their Fit Finder quiz. You can take it online in 60 seconds. Over 15 million women have done this, and it helps you identify your breast size and shape and then find the styles that are perfect for your body. These are hands down the most comfortable bras you'll ever own. The straps won't slip. They have tagless labels, which means no itching. They're basically just the best. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash WIP now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash WIP for 15% off today. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, which is why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Kat Scheider and her team of scientists at Ritual are making clinically tested the new normal. They have obsessively researched each nutrient in their visionary women's multivitamin And they have tested their formula. Science-backed isn't just a term for them. It's their standard. They leave out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and all those shady extras that are found in a lot of traditional vitamins. And they're committed to showing you their nutrients, where they come from, and why they've chosen them. They call that traceability. That's why I love Ritual so much, because I know exactly what I'm putting in my body, and they've made taking my daily vitamins so easy easy. One of my favorite things about their vitamins is that they're designed to be gentle on an empty stomach. They have a delayed release, no nausea capsule, which means that if you want to take your vitamins first thing in the morning before you've had time to make breakfast, you're a-okay to do that. I also feel really good about the fact that Ritual uses folate in its absorbable form to help women like me and like any of you listening cover your needs. I learned that 40% of women can't actually utilize the synthetic form of folate that's found in so many multivitamins, which means we're missing an essential nutrient. Again, this is why I'm so into the way they make their vitamins. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. You can try it out, satisfaction guaranteed, at ritual.com work to start your personal ritual today. That is 10% off for your first three months at ritual.com slash work. 
So how do you, in, in the work that you do, how do you try to make this stuff, which could feel high concept or, or hard to quantify for people, how do you bring it to the forefront in a way that feels digestible and that, and that helps people understand that we each really have not only a responsibility, but a timeline here? Well, I think the best we can do, Sophia, in my judgment, is, um, you know, tell the facts, be mm-hmm. truthful about exactly what it is that is that is taking place. But also, you know, it, it's not a doomsday scenario. Mm-hmm. We've got to make that clear to people. I'm not sitting here saying, hey, we're locked into some terrible thing that's inevitably going to happen and the world's going to end. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying we have a certain less set of choices based on facts that we need to make. Mm -hmm. And if we make them, if we in fact do the things that are available to us, guess what? It's a win-win-win. I mean, we get better health. Less, I mean, let me give you an example. The biggest cause of children being hospitalized in the United States of America every summer is environmentally induced asthma. That comes from air quality, Mm -hmm. air quality. Where does that come from? This junk we're putting up, it's called pollution. Mm -hmm. And pollution goes up into the atmosphere and it gets stuck there and that's what traps the heat. That's why the earth is warming. And so if there's less of that pollution, now some of that pollution are actually minuscule micro uh, uh, particles. Mm And we measure the particles. We have the ability to measure particles uh, in, in, in the air. And, and, and so the scientists tell us the most we want to have of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is 350 parts per million. Mm. And that's a measurement. And we make it. So we know how to hold it down. Well, guess what? We have places on the planet where it goes over 1,000 parts per million where it's at 700 parts per million a day. Beijing, Hmm. on any given summer day, certain cities in certain parts of the world are so polluted that that, that, there are particulates in the air, and those particulates, you, I, we breathe them in. Mm -hmm. Our lungs weren't meant to have those particulates. Mm -hmm. So you get reactions in your body to the very air you're breathing, and for some people, it becomes carcinogenic. It becomes a cancer as a result. So, you know, there are all kinds of them. I mean, arsenic, mercury, different natural ingredients in the earth, mm-hmm. et cetera, can make you really, really sick. And, and, and uh, so I think as we tell people, as we show people the realities of these things, we can choose to reduce those particulates. And if we did, we'll have less kids hospitalized. Mm. We will not spend, guess how much we spend a year now on, on environmentally induced asthma hospitalization of America's children? $55 billion a year. Wow. $55 billion a year. And so when somebody, you know, one of these folks turns around, well, I, we don't want to do that. The deal with climate is going to cost me money. Are you kidding me? It costs you far more money now mm-hmm. and will cost you far more money to try to mitigate the damages that will come from sea level rise yes. from increased yes. pollution from loss of fisheries 
from all the negative impacts that come from climate, mm. from the climate yeah. crisis. And I think that's such an important point, and thank you for bringing it up. When I, you know, I, I was so fortunate to to work with President Obama on some of his healthcare initiative work, and to really look at the data and understand, to your point, what it costs us to care for people that we're making very sick rather than to spend the money up front and keep people well, keep people in doctors' offices, make sure that people don't get chronically ill before they get treated. It is such an incredible, not only moral responsibility, but fiscal savings to do things right on the front end. So when we we talk about companies, corporations spending more to properly process their waste, that's still going to save us all money in the end. And and that's what makes me so excited about what you're working on, this incredible initiative that you've launched, World War Zero. And when I was researching it, the thing that I love so much is you you say, you're talking about the economic benefits of mobilizing for a net for a net zero carbon economy. You're talking about the national security implications of inaction, and you're talking about health and pollution, something that affects every family across the country. And I thought, there it is. Those are the points that no matter where we're from, how we were raised, we can all agree we want a healthy economy, we want excellent national security, and we want to make sure that people have access to great health because of a lack of pollution. Those should be universal beliefs. So it, it honestly, talking to you about it, I, I'm buzzing. I feel like I've just had an espresso shot or something. Can you, can you talk to us about how, how this came to be? How did you convene this group of people? And, and what would you say makes World War Zero different from other initiatives people have tried to launch? Well, the, the other... The second part of your question, you know, why do you have these sort of other people is really key to what I was trying to accomplish with this, which is very simple, that we were just going around in circles in this debate. Mm -hmm. And people would simplistically say, well, what do I care about the ice melting in Greenland? Or why do the polar bears matter or whatever? And that was the brand. Mm. It seems to me that we've needed to really change the dialogue more mm. that's not you know that's not what it's all about those are those are those are parts of it and they are things to care about but the main thing to care about is your your you know the the, the security of the planet the security of our country mm-hmm. which is why and also jobs i mean there are better jobs and more jobs to be created in moving our country and the world to the new energy policy. Why new energy policy? Because energy policy is the solution to the climate crisis. Mm. Climate crisis is here because we burn fossil fuels. Coal, gas, oil sends up. It's a dirty fuel. Those are dirty fuels. Mm. I mean, there's just no way about it. Gas is less dirty than oil, which is less dirty than coal. Gas is about 50% less CO2 than the burning of coal, but coal is still the dirtiest fuel on the planet. And now solar is completely more competitive than coal price-wise. It's Mm. cheaper to do solar than it is to do coal. So the solution to climate crisis is stop polluting 
stop putting this warming blanket over the in the atmosphere that traps the heat into the earth like a greenhouse which is why it's called a greenhouse mm. effect begin to shift away to clean sustainable renewable fuels mm -hmm. the sun powers us every hour more power than we need mm -hmm. we don't harness that power but but if we are now harnessing it and starting to we have the ability to be able to provide a clean alternative same thing with hydro same thing with wind turbines mm. and we could put many more wind turbines offshore we could put them in in various uh, you know i was in iowa recently during the campaign and massive you know wonderful uh, wind turbines the farmers lease the land for the turbine they actually get income mm -hmm. from the from the wind and it's clean mm -hmm. uh, so we 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 need to implement better policy at a national basis and lead the world in transitioning away from fossil fuels it's very mm -hmm. simple we need to do it over a period of time mm -hmm. and and it seems to me to be such a hopeful opportunity especially when you talk about fossil fuel industries the the backbreaking work that so many american workers have to do whether it's in coal mining or on oil rigs these are dangerous jobs and and i i feel so hopeful about the idea that we could not only transition those people into safer jobs with solar and the kinds of renewable energies you're talking about, but provide incredible education to people who deserve it. You know, become an engineer, become, become sure. a scientist. You know, our, our men and women across the country deserve the opportunities to not only have jobs, but have the best jobs and the safest jobs and, and jobs that will be fulfilling both you know, monetarily and, and intellectually. And, and I, I feel like being able to have conversations like this across so many lines, you know, you've, you've convened a group of people for this that come from all different sorts of backgrounds. And I think that that's really exciting as well as to, to build a real unified coalition, I think can remind people out there that we really are so much more alike than different. Can I can I ask where the where did the name come from? Why why World War Zero? Well, we we, we fought over the name for quite a period of time. Actually, <laughs> uh, I, I had started with the name No Planet B, and then we we you know somebody suggested to me we really needed to do some deep dig deep dive research on branding and mm. so forth, naming mm. something. So a great terrific fellow who works at uh, Lippincott Advertising Agency, a guy named John Marshall helped us convene uh, a group of people who put a lot of effort into helping to design and you know there's a consortium of about 25 different advertising agencies that had come together wow. to work on this on climate and they were very helpful with us and the name came through that process I and mean, we must have gone through six or seven hundred different names everything you know we are the future and what is you know, i mean name it and we landed on this because it really depicts, it, it's edgy and it depicts what we have to do. Yep. We have to get, the world has to be involved. The war is, is not just what we need to do, but it's also the war that was started by people who, who declared war on science. Yes. People who have literally thrown facts out the window. They don't want to deal with fact. They don't want to do. That's declaring war on reason, war on, war on evidence, war on science itself. And so mm. 
we felt that the only way to convey the urgency was to embrace that concept of getting on a war footing. And finally, zero, World War Zero. Zero is our target by 2050 to have an economy globally that is net zero emissions. Mm. And when I say net zero emissions, that allows you, if you have offsets, if you, if you can have a certain budget for carbon, and that doesn't mean you're getting rid of it in every respect whatsoever, but it means you are netting out mm-hmm. at zero because you have the ability to take it out of the atmosphere or because you're containing mm-hmm. it or whatever the reason. And, and so World War Zero is the, is the challenge of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. It is, the, and the younger generation knows this. Young people are the ones who are out there doing climate strike. Uh, they're, they're organizing, they're engaged in major efforts to uh, hold politicians accountable. And, and I, I think that's spectacular. I think the young people are really calling people to account here. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to create a political structure that is accountable. It's very exciting. I don't know about all of you, but life feels pretty darn stressful right now. And that's why I'm very excited to have discovered the stressless CBD capsules from Elixinol. Their mission is simple. They improve the quality of people's lives through the power of cannabinoids like CBD. Yes, that might sound like a tall order, but they have the knowledge and experience to deliver. They've been on this path for decades. And over the last five years, they've really focused their efforts on the science, research, and development of world-class CBD products. So whether it's work, kids, parents, the economy, COVID, your health, life is stressful. And that's why they've designed a product to help cope with the daily stress that we all experience and promote balanced mood and vitality. Their stressless capsules deliver relief naturally with 15 milligrams of full-spectrum CBD that also has 300 milligrams of ashwagandha in every capsule. That's an incredible adaptogen that is so good for you. Because look, even occasional stress deserves regular care. Elixinol has been a leader in the CBD industry since before it was even an industry. They've got 25 years of hemp know-how and unmatched quality standards. And they provide detailed third-party certificates of analysis on every single product so you can see and verify exactly what you're putting in your body. If stressing less sounds good to you, go to elixinol.com for 20% off and use the promo code WIP. That's elixinol, E-L-I-X-I-N-O-L.com for 20% off your order of elixinol stressless CBD capsules. We've begun this new year and a little bit of it may feel a bit derailed, but that's why I think it's even more important to hold on to our 2020 vision and plans. We've got to-do lists, we've got memories to make, and when we're thinking about setting goals for the future, one of our sponsors, Article, is here to help you make those goals stress-free and beautiful. They make the most incredible furniture. I'm talking stackable extra seating, sofa beds, extendable tables, multi-purpose poofs. Article's selection of stylish and well-made furniture makes it so easy to find just what you're looking for. And while we're all stuck at home, furniture feels 
top of mind important. They curate a boutique furniture store with the comfort and simplicity of shopping online. Their pieces are beautifully crafted. They use quality materials and durable construction. They have every aesthetic you can think about from modern mid-century to Scandinavian to industrial to bohemian designs. And they have fast, affordable, flat rate shipping available across the U.S. and Canada. Article saves you up to 30% over traditional retail prices because they have no showrooms, no salespeople, no retail markups, and you get 30 days to make up your mind. I have been so pleased with the pieces that I ordered from Article for my house, both indoor and outdoor furniture that honestly makes my space feel so complete. And because we love each other, Article is offering my listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim that, just visit article.com slash WIP and the discount will be automatically implied at checkout. That's article.com slash WIP to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. There's one thing in the in those initial bullet points in, in which the organization talks about what it's really getting into, when we speak about the national security implications of inaction, I, I would like to touch on that with you because I think in the public, people are really seeing what inaction looks like as it's framed by COVID-19. They, they understand that this many Americans did not have to die. And as you mentioned, we're well over 30,000 on, on the day that you and I are speaking. That's between five and six times as many people as we lost on 9-11. This is, in in my estimation as a citizen, an immense dereliction of duty by the ruling powers in our country. They've, they've left us exposed and unsafe. And inaction quite literally costs human lives. So I feel like that's blaringly obvious right now. I'm curious about when we discuss it in terms of climate change and, and we talk about what the implications of inaction on climate are, how does national security fit into that conversation? Well, if you believe, I mean, you, you know, you can't be half pregnant. You can't say that you believe the scientists, but you're not going to believe what the scientists are telling you is going to happen. Mm. And, and the predictions of what are going to happen is utterly catastrophic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the end of life on Earth over a period of time mm-hmm. if we don't do anything. We, we, we lose the ability to be able to live as we have lived mm-hmm. and grow products. And, and, and why is that? Because if you heat up, we're, we're currently heading, we're right now, let me be specific. Right now, we're at about one degree of warming, a little bit more, mm-hmm. one, 1.2 or so. And that's one or one point two Celsius, uh, Celsius, correct? Celsius, mm-hmm. so Celsius, correct, Celsius. So uh, it's what it, it, you know. We're 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 heading. The scientists have told us that to preserve the capacity for life as we have known it on Earth, uh, to live with what our expectations are about the weather and growing crops and living the seasons that we live. You want to hold the Earth's temperature increase to about 2 degrees centigrade and hopefully Mm 1.5. 1.5 was the aspirational target that came out of the Paris Agreement, which I had the privilege of leading our negotiations in Paris on. So 1.5, 
we're, we're now on course to blow right through 1.5. We don't have a chance of holding it to 1.5. In fact, we probably don't have the ability to hold it to two without massive choices in the next very few years. Mm. And, and it's very hard to see how politically some of those choices are going to get made. So right now, if you did everything that was set out in the Paris Agreement, because no one's been doing anything yet, and we're running behind, not anything, I can't say that, because we're not where we should be in terms of the rate of reduction. Mm -hmm. It's too slow. We are heading towards 3.7 degrees, and the reality is that's only if you did what was in Paris. We're not doing what was in Paris. Mm. Therefore, we're heading to about 4.1 to 4.5 degrees warming in this century. Mm. So... That is, un that is an earth that is uninhabitable. That is where science tells us we are now going. Mm -hmm. So the choice we face is existential. Are we going to preserve this planet to be livable, to leave it mm -hmm. to our children the way uh, you know, we were left a planet by our parents that is one that we could manage? With difficulties, yes. With wars, complications. But this is bigger than anything that's ever happened in terms of its ability to upset uh, the, the, the capacity mm -hmm. for life and for plants mm -hmm. and for trees and for uh, birds and fish and mm -hmm. all the things that we need to have be able to reproduce, uh, we don't want to muck up that ecosystem. Right. And a lot of people are completely disregarding the, 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 what it means to be an ecosystem. And to your point, I, I think there is a disconnect in our understanding of security, be it national or global, the security of being able to simply exist, to go to work, to be outside, to have a family, to have plants, trees, that, that is not a guarantee for us. And it, it, it became incredibly apparent to me in, in 2018, I was able to travel with a, a group of climate activists up to the global seed vault in Svalbard, Norway, and to look at the, the science behind our greatest attempt to preserve global food chains and to sit with these unbelievable scientists and talk about Yeah, I, I went up there too. I went to Svalbard. I know what you're talking about. It's incredible. Incredible. And to talk about how tenuous global food systems really are. And, and what was so shocking to me, two things, was to learn that for every degree of warming we experience on the planet, we lose percentages of food production while our population is increasing. And then to understand that as they look at degrees of warming, when areas become unfarmable, when agricultural systems collapse, you look at, as you referenced, climate refugees, and we're talking about estimations of between 7 and 20 million climate refugees now. So if we warm by 4 degrees, we're talking an, an X factor, which could be 120 million climate refugees in two years. Where are these people going to go? How are we going to feed them? That, that is a national and global security issue. And, and so while I look around and, and I don't feel like there's any adults in the room uh, dealing with our sort of immediate and current issues in the country, I'm very relieved that you are one of the adults in the room on this global crisis because we do need to take it seriously. We do need to ring the five alarm fire. And to your point, we do need to understand that we have the ability to solve for this within our reach. We should be hopeful 
while being incredibly demanding of change. You're right. I mean, you couldn't say it better. I, I couldn't agree more. That is exactly what we have to do. And, and it requires a level of bipartisanship. And, and that is where I, I get curious about some of your background, Secretary Kerry, because, you know, you, you served in the Senate for 28 years and you had so many friends on both sides of the aisle. And, and there are people from that peer group of yours who talk about how you used to be in the Senate with, sure, your convictions, but there wasn't this all out kind of left side, right side war. Well, we began to see it. Mm. For most of the years I was there, there wasn't, but in the, it, it began to start, uh, it started a sense with the Gingrich revolution and then it went into the Tea Party and the Tea mm. Party, the Freedom Caucus. But we began to see a very different Senate uh, with the, you know, from the 2000 on. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think we, because I talk to an awful lot of people every day and, and I know so many of us who haven't been in this sort of upper echelons of government are craving a return to bipartisanship, are craving a, a return to leadership that prioritizes the people. How do we advocate, would you say, having, having been behind all of those closed doors, what can we do, myself, listeners, average citizens, to call for a return to bipartisanship, to call for a prioritization of science rather than political party? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you suggest for us? Well, the single most important thing is people have got to be active. You've got to engage. Democracy is hard work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work if citizens don't vote. And in the last election, only 55.6% of eligible Americans decided to come out and vote. Mm -hmm. We've got to care about our democracy. People have to. There's no automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. You've got to be engaged. And so I think the single most important thing in our nation is for people to stand up and be engaged in, 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 uh, in the political process. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. I don't care. You've got to take part in it. Mm -hmm. And, and you've got to have a debate that's based not on some fantasy ideology of some kind, but on facts and reality. Combine science and combine your values and bring them together. Mm -hmm. Bring your faith to the table. But, you know, a lot of people aren't living their faith. I hear more stuff from people about, you know, blessed are the meek and, you know, you got to feed the poor and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and so forth. And they don't do any of that. Right. So I think we got a lot of work to do. In in regards to, you know, democracy really being an action verb, we, we've got to get out there and, and flex it. When you look at the effects of our current situation with the pandemic, social and physical distancing, and we see how that's really prompting some serious voter suppression. You know, the Trump administration is trying to defund the U.S. Postal Service because it's highly likely that the November election will have to be carried out by mail. What do you think, what do you think about that? And, and, and what do you, I, I guess just what do you make of it? There's only one party in America that works overtime to mm. try to prevent people from voting. Mm. And it's not the Democratic Party. Mm. The Democratic Party wants people to vote, wants people to be enfranchised, wants every American to be able to exercise their right to vote. And unfortunately, in too many states, you see purges, literally purging of voters. 
and they just throw a lot of names in there. People there, it's legitimate to take people off who died or people who have moved. But what happens is they throw a whole bunch of legitimate voters in and just throw them out. Mm -hmm. And then people come to the polls and they're denied their right to vote. This mm -hmm. has happened. This happens regularly. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of games that are played, restricting the number of voting machines in a precinct so people have longer lines and they can't wait. They do it in, a, you know, in the opposing parties, particularly strong precincts and so forth. We ought to have everybody in this electronic world where we have secure transfer of your, your, your credit cards, your personal information, all of that is kept secure in various places. We have an ability to do a transaction where they know who it is, they know who's voting, you can vote. But more important, I'm for a paper ballot. Me I too. prefer a paper ballot. Me I don't too. want these electronic machines where you have to go check it later. Send the paper ballot in and people should be able to vote by mail, there are absolute ways to guarantee the sanctity of that Donald Trump votes by mail. That's <laughs> mm -hmm. how he voted. And that's how every American should have a right to be able to vote. I agree. Um, so I've got one, one final question for you, and it is my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes and joins us on the show. The, the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious, when you, when you sit with the phrase, whether it's something personal or professional, what in your life feels like a work in progress right now? Everything, every day <laughs> of my life is a work in progress. That's a, what can I say? One big work in progress. Uh, look, the topic we've been talking about is the biggest single work in progress issue. I've worked on climate change now for uh, most of my public life in one form or another, and we gotta get it done. And I'm determined to uh, keep working at it. Absolutely. Well, if there is ever anything that I can do to help with the initiative, with media, with really any of it, please. Well, you can. Absolutely. You can use your social media. You can, you can tweet something out about it, worldwarzero.com. It's Earth Week coming up, Earth Day. Uh, we got to let people know how important it is to be active. And this is a place to go and have some impact. Wonderful. Thank you so Really much. nice to be with you, Sophia. I appreciate it. On the contrary, thank you for caring. And thanks for, your, uh, thanks for doing a podcast and for being really deeply engaged on this issue. You obviously know a lot. You've done your homework. You've traveled to Svalbard, for God's sake. Yes, sir. Take care. God bless. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye now. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.